0: This episode contains violence and explicit material. I advise discretion. Hello everyone, Dominic here. The episode you are about to hear is not part of the main narrative, nor is it about ancient Egypt specifically. Instead, this episode is a bit of fun, in which I explore a culture inspired by the art and mythology of pharaonic Egypt. Today, I want to tell you about the Tomb Kings, from the tabletop game Warhammer Fantasy. The Tomb Kings are a mix of old-school horror movies, ancient Egyptian mythology and art, with a dash of Lovecraftian horror. The basic premise of these characters is simple. Imagine the mummy, as seen in classic adventure films, and expand that to an entire army. They are a culture of undead, animated corpses, shambling skeletons, and inhuman creatures. They march from subterranean chambers and tombs, bringing calamity to their foes. Their priests wield arcane magics to cast spells and reanimate the dead. And they inhabit a world where gods are real, where demons assault the earthly realms, and where chaotic forces swirl through many planes of existence. The epitome of grim dark fantasy, the Warhammer universe is torn by endless war, and the Tomb Kings move in that sphere. In concept, the Tomb Kings are simple, mummies, plus magic, plus dark fantasy, mixed into a tabletop wargame. Superficially, that is all you need to know. And if none of that sounds like your jam, feel free to disembark the ride here. Of course, for those in the know, the picture is quite different. The Tomb Kings have a simple premise, but their fictional history is vast. An enormous tapestry of stories and legends, woven together. Like many fantasy worlds, the Warhammer universe is dense, rich in lore and storytelling. Beyond the tabletop game, there are countless books, video games, and role-playing scenarios that expand on the mythology and world-building. Simultaneously, the players themselves contribute, with ongoing private campaigns shaping bespoke versions of the Warhammer world. Add to that a bewildering array of fan art and fan fiction, and you have a pop-culture enterprise as rich as any on the market. You could dive in head first, but you might drown in the vortex. Perhaps dip your toes in first, say with a podcast episode exploring some of the lore. On the tabletop itself, the Tomb Kings behave like any other army. They have their own rules and systems to govern how a player uses them. Whether casting powerful spells, managing a chariot charge, or directing enormous monsters, These characters reward concentration and imagination. To outsiders, such games may seem strange and impenetrable. Fair enough, I do not play the Warhammer tabletop myself. But I love fictional histories, and I love the Tomb Kings. To set the scene, we can say that the Tomb Kings have not always been undead walking corpses. Once they were a thriving civilization on the banks of a mighty river, They built cities and pyramids, they crossed deserts, and waged wars against their neighbours. They mummified the dead and worshipped great gods, some of whom appeared in the form of animals. In this, they draw much inspiration from the real history of ancient Egypt. But of course, this is a fantasy designed for maximum fun. So the tomb kings built on real history, mixing in mythology and a generous helping of horror. With these simple ingredients, players and game designers can spin out elaborate stories, scenarios, challenges and imagery. Today, I want to introduce you to some of it. Warhammer enthusiasts should note that my history is embellished slightly. I have drawn my narrative from the primary sources, the army books and scenario guides, created by the developers at Games Workshop. But these resources can sometimes be light on the details. So, wherever I felt the story needed something extra, I have flexed my creative muscles and added little bits here and there. Many of these added details come from the real history of ancient Egypt, and the deeds of its rulers. Overall, I would say this episode is 90% canonical lore, quote-unquote, 5% creative writing, and 5% titbits from our own history. Also, there are a few references to other fantasy works, books, and games, as Easter eggs for brave adventurers. So the story you will hear is ever so slightly expanded from the canonical version. Call it imagination, call it fanfiction. But please, don't call it heresy. This episode is longer than my usual pieces. We are covering a huge story, one spanning centuries and millennia. And we are also going to explain the inspirations behind this culture and its characters. So. I have divided the tale into small chapters, approximately 15 minutes each, separated by musical cues. There are time codes in the description, should you wish to jump around. Now then, introduction over. Let us open our texts to explore the history of the Tomb Kings. Chapter 1. The Sands of Nehekāra To my venerable and esteemed reader, I write these words that you may know what secrets I uncovered in my long years away from the capital. On special assignment from the Supreme Patriarch, I ventured forth from our ancestral lands. I travelled south on a fact-finding mission to uncover the secrets that lie beyond our borders. I explored many places and spoke with many people, travelers, soldiers, and the rulers of distant cities. I went to record those things of which I now write. I beg you, esteemed reader, to heed my words and consider their import. At the northeastern corner of a vast continent lie the deserts of Nehekara, bordered by mountains in the south, the ocean in the north and west and barbaric lands in the north and east, Nehekara is a land of silence and sand. Boundless dunes stretch across valleys and hills. Empty plains choke with dust. Here and there, half-buried ruins and tumbled monuments are the only remnants of a once mighty civilization. Today, Nehekara is a wasteland, scorched by sun, swept by winds, and home only to the dead. At the heart of this land, a black river, putrid and slow-moving, winds its way towards the sea. The fetid river, all but stagnant, is called Mortis, death to any who drink its waters. Beyond the river, the lone and level sands stretch as far as the eye can see. Where one would expect life, one sees only dust. Travellers call Nehekara the land of the dead, It is a frightful kingdom, where shifting sands reveal forgotten catacombs, and monsters prowl the darkness, preying on the unwary. Crossing the dunes, one may be ambushed by giant scorpions. Amid tumbled ruins, the very statues come to life, cutting down any who trespass their domain. For those brave, or foolish enough to enter the pyramids, one finds only death. that does not sleep periodically the dusts of Nehekara part revealing the sight of a vast shambling legion skeletons that walk clatter forward clutching spears and shields in their bony hands mummified corpses march in rank their ancient armor gleaming in the sun behind them towering constructs like war sphinxes stride forward seeking new prey to charge and devour Chariots of bone and bronze rattle across the plains, chasing down foes and crushing them under wheel. Above all these, beings of unimaginable size, the bone giants and hyro titans, sweep aside their enemies with ease. They are the colossi of antiquity, given life, their bodies coarse with foul magics. To those few that have seen these armies and lived to tell of it, the tomb kings and their legions are the epitome of fear. They march in horrifying silence across their land. The deserts are their home, the sands are their ally. It was not always thus. Once, Nehekara was verdant, teeming with animals and people. Once, the sands were covered by soil, and green fields hugged the water's edge. In those distant days, the river was not a ribbon of death, it was a fount of life. Thousands of years ago, the land of Nehekara was vibrant. Long ages passed when our forefathers were but a distant idea. The mighty lords of creation ruled this earth. Great gods, old ones, roamed the land, warring endlessly against the chaotic forces of destruction. The greatest of these was Petra, the sun god. Slayer of demons, Petra banished the darkness and transformed chaos into order. It was Petra that created the first humans, nomadic tribes who worshipped his light and the gifts the god bestowed. The great sun god gave fire to warm their homes, speech that they might communicate, and memory that they could pass on all they had learned. The greatest gift was the river, called Vitai, life by our scholars. In the ancient tongue, its name was likely closer to Iterkara, the great river, or Iterankaf, the river of life. The waterway that wound through Nehekara transformed the desert into verdant green fields. It was Petra who created this landscape. Humanity knew Petra and worshipped him, and the great god, in turn, formed a pact with the ancients. The covenant was simple, knowledge in exchange for worship. The gods would teach humans, giving them wisdom and learning. In return, humans would give the gods offerings and adoration from their hearts and souls. With this pact, the culture was born, and the people grew strong over many generations. The nomads settled by the river, and transformed wild plants into lush farms. With every harvest, their population grew, strong children and vigorous youths. They spread out, settling new communities. And before long, their loose-knit tribes came together, recognizing kinship as part of a new country. They called it the Great Land, Nehe Kara, and in those early days, the people were happy blessed to live in the most prosperous of realms. The Nehekarans were a proud and accomplished people. With endurance and determination, they built the first monuments of stone, great temples to Petra and other gods of the pantheon. Around these temples, villages turned to towns, and every generation prospered greater than its parents. Of course, the ever-expanding realms, and the ever-increasing wealth, soon brought the rulers of Nehekara into strife. Leaders became chieftains, chieftains became warlords, warlords became kings, and kings became enemies. Across the land, war parties began to raid and battle one another, as a hundred petty kingdoms tried to establish dominance and expand their domain. So it was, that a time of strife fell on the people, and the thrones of Nehekara passed between one petty king and another. A hundred rulers passed in quick succession, each more forgettable than the last. As each city fought to control the rest, the people of Nehekara weakened themselves with pointless internal strife. With the land divided, it was not long before other races sought to invade. From the east and south, amid jungle ferns, the mighty lizard men poured forth. Their reptilian claws and gnashing jaws cut down the distracted humans, dealing defeat after defeat to the armies of Nehekara. The Saurian lizard men invaded the rivers, springing from the water to plunder boats and pull sailors into the depths. Their attack was calculated and vicious, and it was many years before an organized defense finally pushed them back. The next invasion came from the north. The greenskins, orcs and goblins invaded Nehekara, seeking glory and power. Their war chiefs marched into the fray without fear. They bellowed challenges to the greatest champions, and many captains of humanity fell beneath their axes. Across the northern frontier, human warriors struggled to hold back the tide. The orcs' fangs and tusks pierced many soldiers before hauling them off to slavery and death. Again, the fighting was fierce for many years, before the orcish war chiefs at last withdrew. Whether the Nehekarans had triumphed, or simply got lucky, none could say. Finally, the third invasion came from other humans. Pale-skinned, red-bearded northerners followed the orcs, sweeping into Nehekara to take what the greenskins had not. These strange folk rode enormous beasts into battle, towering quadrupeds with shaggy woolen coats and long tusks. Their trunks picked archers off towers, dashing them against the walls, and their tree-like legs swept warriors aside like reeds on the bank. The Nehekarans fought bravely, but the onslaught crippled the lands and brought the warring kingdoms to the brink of collapse. With such calamities afflicting the land, it seemed like the gods themselves must have cursed Nehekara, For its disunity, Petra and others were punishing the people. And before too long, the land itself seemed to turn against them. At the height of the northern invasion, a great plague emerged. Disease racked the land, striking down warrior, artisan, priest and king alike. Whole families died, their bones withered to dust, their lungs filled with blood. It was a malady unlike any before or since a great pestilence that savaged all in its path. As the plague advanced, another calamity struck. The great river of life began to diminish, its waters receding and shrinking. Once, the river had seemed a miniature ocean between the sands. Now, it shrank to a ribbon, narrow enough to swim. Soon, the annual flood barely crested the banks. The farms lay fallow, and the harvests diminished. Naturally, The food shortages struck, and hunger followed. Throughout the land, children cried from empty bellies. Families starved if they had not died of sickness first. Whole towns vanished, their houses emptied of the living. The wailing of mothers, fathers, and children echoed across the land. Bonfires flared day and night, consuming the corpses and belching smoke into the heavens. In time, even the sky went black choked with the ashes from pyres. People turned to the gods, raising blackened, blistered hands towards the sun. They cried aloud. Why did Petra inflict such punishment? Would Basth, goddess of love and grace, not protect them? Or would Jaf, the jackal of the dead, reap his bloody dew for evermore? Wailing, people burned their dead as offerings, and the sky grew blacker each year. The gods remained silent. The creators were absent. Humanity was on its own, and as the years passed, the dead of Nehekara outnumbered the living. The ancients begged the gods to save them. But it was a human who brought salvation to the land. A young king, born to power, saw through the turmoil and realised the way to his people's future. His name was Setra and he would be humanity's greatest leader. Chapter 2. Setra. Prince of Khemri. 5,000 years ago, the child called Setra was born. He entered this world at a full moon, in the twilight years of his father's reign. Setra came of age in the city of Khemri, a minor kingdom that changed hands repeatedly during the time of strife. Khemri suffered terribly in the great pestilence, and as an infant, Setra himself nearly perished from the wasting disease. His father ordered priests to attend him, and Setra's own mother, a priestess of Basth and Nehru, spent many days chanting spells, weaving incantations over her sickly, crying child. Prince Setra survived the pestilence, but it left scars upon his body. His mother refused any treatment for these marks. Instead, she insisted they remain, a visible reminder of the terrible plague. The priestess showed Setra how the gods had turned on the land, how all Nehekara had suffered in the wake of their act. Watching, listening, young Setra absorbed the lessons and learned respect for Petra's might. In time, The great plague diminished and began to recede. The kingdom of Khemri began to recover, although it was now a sparsely populated land. Farmers returned to the fields, but their numbers were reduced, and for the next decade, the kingdom slowly limped along the road to recovery. Years passed, and Setra grew into a young man. The prince was an observant, patient boy, He practiced diligently with weapons and learned the martial arts of a Nehekaran warrior. In physical exertion and the near-obsessive pursuit of his goals, the young prince found calm and peace within his mind. He used that calm to study and learn, to absorb the skills of a ruler and practice the art of governance. In time, Setra became a man who balanced his mind and his body. A man with the skills and character to rule. Eventually, the old king of Khemri died, and Setra took his place on the throne. From the start, the young man showed a new spirit of monarchy. He eschewed the annual campaigns, the endless civil wars of his predecessor. Growing up, Setra watched as his father and the warriors of Khemri wasted their lives and strength in pointless battle. Every year, the king of Khemri marched forth on yet another campaign, and every year he returned home bloodied with little to show for it. Now, Setra would act differently. The new king declined any invitation to battle. Instead, he tended to the domestic affairs of Khemri and its people. To protect the borders, he established mighty fortresses along the riverbank, and with these forts, his soldiers controlled trade, charging fees to pass through Kemrian lands. When other kings objected, Setra simply replied, if your warriors can take my walls, you too may control the river. To enrich the land, Setra planted new fields, and he did this in person, striding barefoot over the soil to dig new furrows and sow new seeds. Before crowds of subjects, Setra knelt in the dirt and helped coax new life into being. His people loved him for it, and the king loved their adulation. Sadly, Setra's efforts were stymied by the terrible calamities that still lay upon the land. The great river of life continued to run low. Its waters did not flood as in ages past. Every year, the harvest remained meagre Limiting Kemri's growth and stifling their efforts. Setra recognized these problems. Walking through the fields and swimming in the river, the young king ruminated on the problems which afflicted his land. He considered the role of the gods and the ways their displeasure might have caused these calamities. Viewing his own scarred body, Setra considered the sacrifices that were necessary to appease Petra and others of the pantheon. He deliberated for many days, and all around his followers wondered what the king would do. At last, Setra came to a solution. To restore the river and save his people, Setra devoted great resources to the gods. He built new temples in honour of Petra, the sun god, Neru, goddess of the moon, Asaph, the serpent lady of magic, Tahoth, lord of knowledge, and Usirian, king of the underworld and the dead. Setra honoured all the gods, showering them with offerings and supporting their priests. Setra's devotion to the lords of creation was complicated. Perhaps the king was truly pious, believing that humans had failed in their duty. After all, who in Nehekara remembered the great pact, the covenant between mortals and the divine? The gods offered knowledge in exchange for worship, but these days such notions seemed a distant superstition, mocked by the young and feared by the elderly. Or perhaps Setra, scarred by childhood plagues, knew the price of ignoring divine power, and determined never to repeat his ancestor's mistakes. The young king, desiring a long rule, may have praised the gods for his own mortal goals. Whatever his motives, none can doubt Setra's commitment to the great covenant. At the end of his first year in power, on the anniversary of his coronation, Setra summoned the priests, courtiers, and people of Khemri for a great ceremony. The king brought forth an altar, on which he laid offerings to the gods. He gave up the customary gifts, grains, fruits, wine, and meat. He burned the victuals, sending them to heaven. And though the offerings were bountiful, the people were confused. Why had the king summoned them for such typical rites? Then, Setra unveiled his final offering. Before the hushed silence of his followers, the king led forth his two children. A young boy and girl, drugged and blinking in the sunlight, came forth and lay obediently on their father's altar. Before the hushed voices of the crowd, the king raised his dagger. He uttered a grace to Petra, and then stabbed down courtiers and citizens screamed, and Setra's own wife, the children's mother, collapsed dead from shock. The priests watched horrified at this dark rite. Setra had not consulted them on his deed. Instead, he had viewed arcane texts, imbibed forgotten potions, and communed in long trances to make his decision. He had told none of this plan, and when the dagger struck home, a part of Nehekara changed forever. Setra stepped forward, with the blood of his own kin dripping from his hands and staining the court. He raised his voice to the crowd, and uttered a fearsome prayer. Before the people of Khemri, Setra demanded a new pact with the gods. He would give them sacrifices beyond counting, the blood of his enemies dead beneath his sword. In return for this blood, the gods would give Setra victory in battle and the strength to overcome all foes. The young king would unite Nehekara and bring the name of Petra, Jaff, and Asaf to every foreign land. Raising his fists high, dagger bloody in the sun, Setra shouted his demands. The king called to heaven and the gods answered. It is said, that at the very moment Setra murdered his children, the great river began to rise once more. Water flowed, thick and strong, and even crested the banks, bringing the first true flood in decades. The fields drank deep of the nourishing moisture, and within a few short hours, they bloomed in a rich harvest. In the space of a day, the farms of Khemri regained much of their old prosperity. When he heard this news, and saw the yellow corn waving in the breeze, Setra knew the gods had accepted. Blood offered in battle would bring prosperity at home. The sun god and all of the pantheon had blessed Setra. Now the young king revealed his greater purpose, to march out of Khemri and unite the lands with bloodshed and violence. After years of quiet and patience, Setra moved to conquer. Setra gathered his warriors, calling them to follow as he led the way. In his gleaming chariot of wood and bronze, the king marched at the head of his armies. He moved against the other kingdoms that made up Nehekara. He captured fortresses by offering his enemies a pact. If they surrendered at once, they would be spared. If they fought, then every one of them, warrior and prisoner, would die as an offering to the gods. Some accepted... Others did not. Either way, Setra took the forts, and soon he controlled the whole river. Cities across Nehkara banded together to resist this upstart warrior. The petty kings fought alongside one another in order to retain their ancient power. But none could win. Setra's inexhaustible vigour seemed like a gift from the gods itself. When he waded into the fray, the young king laid about him with his spear bringing down all foes no matter their size. The king's soldiers seemed invincible, their limbs were strengthened by the abundance of food that Khemri now enjoyed. The prosperous farms delivered endless supplies that kept Setra's army fed and energized. The king himself was a soldier's friend, marching beside them and standing in the ranks. Although Setra was a distant, aloof figure, He shouldered the same burdens as those who served him. For that, the soldiers loved their king. The armies of Khemri marched year after year against their foes. Soon, Setra accomplished what none before had done. The petty lords bowed before him and acknowledged his might as the great king. Setra was the ruler of all Nehekara. Chapter 3. Setra, the Imperishable Setra, the great king, had unified the land. Now, he had to rule it. The king governed with a will forged from the hardest bronze. He judged trials with care, but doled out fierce punishment to those convicted of crime. He bestowed many gifts and boons upon his people, financing roads and protecting settlements from danger. Setra was a ruler of great skill, but also great arrogance. For his gifts, he demanded much in return, obedience, adoration, and offerings, as if to a god itself. Indeed, some whispered that Setra believed himself to be a god, or the closest that any mortal had come. As if to confirm this rumor, Setra commanded his stonemasons to carve a great temple from the side of a cliff. Four immense statues, taller than the highest tower, sat enthroned in the wall of a mountain. Each statue bore the face of Setra and its chill sneer of cold command. Within this temple, Setra proclaimed to all that he alone among humans deserved the power of rule, and as his statues would sit for eternity, so he would rule forever. Of course, all know Setra for his military might. The great king was a persistent conqueror, and his territory expanded year by year. Setra commissioned enormous fleets to explore the ocean and raid the distant barbarian shores. The pale, red-bearded folk that had once invaded Nehekara now found themselves on the other end of the spear. Setra's generals and heralds crossed the vast waters, seeking new lands to plunder, Like their great lord in Khemri, the armies of Setra seemed invincible. Setra himself defeated countless foes, sweeping them aside with his armies, and crushing them beneath his chariot. He defeated enemies in foreign lands, and even those within. When petty kings, resentful of his rule, rose up in rebellion, Setra rode them down personally. He hung their bodies from the prow of his ship, sailing up the great river with his grisly trophies. He took these to Khemri, and hung the rebels' bodies from the temple gates. Thus, all would see the price of defiance. Setra led many raids, exploring distant lands and visiting foreign temples. The king, it is said, was searching for something, though in those early days, none knew what it could be. His bodyguards, marching beside him, recognised a growing shadow in his eyes. His generals, speaking at war councils, noticed the distance that lay behind his gaze, as if the king were distracted, thinking of worlds far from their own. At last, the day came that Setra's thoughts coalesced and found expression. Standing on the peak of a high mountain range, the king turned to survey the lands from which he had come. He saw a vast expanse that served him alone, and he knew his power was great. But when he turned to the other side of the mountain, Setra saw lands that stretched far beyond the horizon and oceans. With a sinking despair in his gut, the king knew, even if he lived a hundred years, two hundred, the world was too vast for one man to conquer. Atop that mountain, Setra howled with frustration and immediately he summoned his scholars, the priests and servants of temples and cults. When he consulted with these masters of law, Setra acknowledged his concern. Concern that, for all his conquests, all his power, there was one foe that he could not defeat. In time, Setra knew he would die. The great king, like all other mortals, would fall to his knees and serve the god of death. Setra refused to serve. As the second decade of his reign began, Setra summoned the priests of each great cult. He commanded them to explore the mysteries of death, to plumb the depths of mortality and uncover the true purpose of decay. Why did human lives wither and end while trees endured for centuries? Why did oceans rage, with all the force of a mighty warrior, yet never feel the sting of death? Why did mountains tower over all, the unshakable giants of the earth, and yet know not what it meant to die? Why should Setra, great king of Nehekara, perish like a mortal? To these questions, the priests had no answers. And so, Setra gave them their task. They would labor without pause in the darkest recesses of arcane knowledge. They would measure the winds of magic to determine the forces that shaped a human life. They would explore the howling vortexes where only chaos dwelled, and bring back such secrets as the terrible void contained. In this mission, they would seek one lesson above all. The lesson of immortality, the guide to vanquishing death. The young priests bowed low before Setra's indomitable will. Their leader, a prodigy named Kartep, swore oaths to the great king that his wish was their utmost command. Pressing his forehead to the stone, Kartep vowed that he would discover the secrets of eternal life. Setra nodded, satisfied with this oath, and he promised Katep and all the priests whatever resources they required. So it was that Setra gave birth to the Mortuary Cult, a shadowy order of priests removed from the Daylight Temples. These priests would explore the mysteries of life, of death, and of the veils that separate these states. The Mortuary Cult would serve until its purpose was fulfilled, and it learned the ways that a human could live forever. The priests travelled far and wide in service to their king, they sought knowledge and wisdom in the furthest corners of the world. Priests went, disguised as diplomats, into the jungles of Lustria, where they spoke with the Saurian and the Slan. The priests learned of the great plan set down by the Old Ones, and for a time the scholars of Nehekara hoped that an alliance with the Lizard Men might bear the fruit they sought. Alas, even the greatest techno wizards knew not the secret of death. Or how to avoid it. With gifts and respect, the Nehekarans bade their hosts farewell. The priests then travelled to the east and the war camps of the orcs. They spoke with shamans, seeking insight into the mysteries and rites that empowered this fearsome race. Orc and goblin sorcerers spoke to the Nehekarans. They told them of Gork and Mork, their great gods. And for a time, the scholars hoped that an alliance here might serve their goals. Alas, even the wisdom and insight of the shamans could not part the veil of death, or teach a man to escape its pull. With gifts and respect, the Nehekarans left these war camps. Finally, the priests travelled north, to the barbaric lands where other humans dwelled. Amid snowy forests and frozen rivers, the priests consulted with seers and wise women who rattled bones and plunged their heads into icy waters to reach their trance-like states. The savages of the north lived in a realm that bordered on darker, more chaotic wastes, and it was said that the magics here twisted one's mind. The priests who visited this land understood that here, their world, and the one that lay beyond sight, seemed closer than at any other location. For a time, the scholars hoped that they might plumb those chaotic depths to find the answers of death. Alas, even the most wretched, mind-flayed seer could not speak of such things, or what fell gods held sway over human affairs. With gifts, and no small amount of fear, the Nehekarans fled this land, though it is said that some of them carried a taint from the chaotic realms beyond. At home, the mortuary cult conducted its work in other ways. By long study, the priests discovered the art of mummification. They learned to preserve the body, so that it would survive decay and loss. Although they could not stop death, the mortuary priests now hoped to preserve the bodies, until such time as resurrection came to light. Thus, the first mummies were born. One day, they hoped, magical science would advance, and they could restore them to life. As the mortuary cult performed its rites, seeking the darkest secrets of life, the great king ruled his world. Setra lived many decades, well past the span of a mortal lifetime. His priests administered potions and spells, extending the king's life. And over 150 years, Setra watched as many of his family and subjects succumbed to the ravages of time. The great king viewed these deaths with a growing sense of unease. He saw the fate that would inevitably embrace him. And one day, courtiers and servants alike scurried for cover, when the roar of Setra's fury resounded through the palace. From the corner of halls and hidden nooks, they heard as the ruler smashed jars, tore furniture apart, and cursed defiance at the god of death. In the wake of this fury, Only one man, the king's herald, was brave enough to ask. What calamity had invoked Setra's rage? Breathing heavily, the great king held out his hand, and in the shaking palm the herald could see, a cluster of hairs, white with age, that Setra had torn from his beard. Though he had lived far beyond a normal lifespan, the king was aging. Soon, Setra's patience dwindled, and his anxiety grew with each passing moon. He castigated the priests, berating them for their lack of progress. He cast scorn upon the failures, throwing the weakest priests to the fires which burned for Petra. And he demanded to know why, with all the world's resources at their back, the priests seemed no further to stopping the inevitable death. Sadly, Setra was no longer the healthy, vigorous man of his youth. Long years marching in the bright sun had dulled his vision, and the king's eyes had weakened with age. Had he retained his old sight, Setra might have noticed something odd about the priests. The hierophants had served more than a hundred years, and yet many of them remained vigorous and active. Indeed, The mortuary priests had not discovered the cure for death, but they had found a way to delay it. The leaders of the cult, a privileged few, now used arcane rituals to prolong their natural lives. These rites did not give true immortality, the priests still aged as normal. But while their colleagues and servants perished, they lingered. Of course, the priests learned to hide their accomplishment. They changed their names every few decades, so that none would realize the length of their days. They wrapped themselves in robes and bandages to conceal their shaking, withered limbs. And they covered their faces, adorning themselves with elaborate masks. Always, these priests remained in the shadows. Had he known of this treachery, Setra would surely have punished them with the most horrific tortures. As it was, the old king's failing eyes saw naught but the pale visage of silver masks. At last, Setra accepted the truth. He would not escape death. He, like all other humans, would serve the great god Jaf in his eternal kingdom. The king's fury gave way to a pall of resignation and then the grim shadow of determination. If he must die, Setra would prepare, and he would arrange such treasures, such protections, as to ensure his resurrection in that far-off day when the mortuary cult at last unlocked the secrets of immortality. To guard his body and those of his servants, Setra commissioned a pyramid, Palace officials fanned out across the kingdom, hauling peasants and slaves to the capital by the boatload. A thousand and then a million laborers began to work on the enormous monument that would be Setra's tomb. Its dimensions were vast, a towering edifice. Its crypts were a labyrinth, hidden beneath the sand and rock. Its sides were gleaming white stone, cut to a precise degree. The blocks rose perfectly aligned to form four smooth sides. Of course, the pyramid's edges were sharp and straight, for Setra does not curve. The Great Pyramid, as it was soon known, rose near the banks of the river, an ever-present reminder to all who passed that Setra, the imperishable king, would return to rule this land. For three decades, the work progressed on this immense monument. And on the day that the last block was laid in place, the great ruler himself also died. After 150 years of rule, the heart of Setra the Imperishable beat its last. His efforts to attain immortality were a failure, and Setra died with a curse upon his lips. In his final moments, the king's rage was cold, unyielding, and he spat hatred at the god of death. A curse of spite on Jaff, that he should strike one who had accomplished so much. If the great god heard this curse, he did not care. Setra died all the same. With the king dead, the mortuary priests began their work. The shambling cultists, their bodies creaking, anointed the ruler's corpse. They purified Setra's limbs, removing many of his organs and preserving them in sacred canopic jars. They left his heart within the body, fearful of contaminating the king's spirit. They piled salts over the limbs, drying it out and preventing further decay. Finally, they bound his limbs in purest linen casting spells over the body to preserve its form eternally. Entombed beneath his pyramid, Setra could slumber, until such time as the priests found the cure for death. Thus, the reign of the great king, the Imperishable One, came to its end. Nehekara's mightiest ruler was gone. The generations that followed Setra known as the dynasties, included many great kings and queens, mighty rulers whose power outshone all others on earth. But none could match the splendor, the grandeur, the power, or the cruelty of Setra. The imperishable king lay in the necropolis, a constant reminder of great days. With every generation, that golden age receded further into memory, and despite their best efforts, none could restore that power. I know, esteemed reader, that these long reigns and imperial deeds may be of some interest. Alas, my fingers grow weary, and I have not the strength to recount such a litany of Nehekara's rulers. Perhaps, in time, my research will uncover more of their deeds, and inspire me to consort once more with these heretical teachings. If such a day should come, I will endeavour to record, in greater detail, the second age of Nehekara's rulers. But with the light of my candle failing, and the cold wind seeping into my chambers, I will turn my tale to the most forbidden and demonic of these stories. For no historian could speak of Nehekara and not reckon with that hideous figure, the treacherous Nagash, he who created the Tomb Kings. Chapter 4 The Time of Kings and the Rise of Nagesh When Setra died, the empire could no longer sustain itself as a cohesive whole. Nehekara fractured, becoming a series of smaller kingdoms. A great king still presided over the various regions. The king of Khemri, the heir of Setra, was acknowledged as the theoretical overlord of all lands. But, in practice, each ruler pursued their own goals, and only in times of external threat did the Nehekarans unite once more to push their foes away. Fortunately, such disunity rarely turned to outright civil war. The legacy of Setra, and the example he set, preserved a sense of community among the petty rulers. And the great kings of Khemri, although shadows of their predecessor, still maintained their vigour, and commanded much respect. Indeed, this was a time of prosperity. The mighty trade fleets still crossed the oceans to bring wealth to Nehekara. The kings still trained legions, and their troops, who doubled as builders, excelled at constructing mighty fortresses, connecting the cities with roads, and punishing any who trespassed their lands. Such achievements are greater than people realize, and perhaps in our own time, we could learn something from their organization. Although this time of kings seems like a mere silver age, perhaps their deeds are worthy of respect. There were many great rulers among these generations, and were they not compared to Setra, they would surely be known as the greatest kings humanity had yet seen. Thus, the Silver Age was, in truth, a continuation of the gold. And yet, within the heart of Nehekara, a slow poison was acting, a rot that would bring the civilization to its end. It came from the mortuary cult. Like Setra before them, the kings of Nehekara desired to live forever they turned to arcane magics wielded by the priests of the mortuary cult to extend their lives. Those priests became an influential group, an alternate source of power, sometimes rivaling the kings themselves. Naturally, with such influence and yet so much mystery surrounding the mortuary cult, it was not long before outlandish rumours began to circulate. It is said that the leader of this cult, the Hierophant Kartep, was the same Kartep who served Setra so many years before. There were whispers that Kartep had denied the pull of death and learned to live forever. Of course, when the great king questioned him on this, Kartep responded with the simplest of lies. He claimed that his name was not truly his name, that Kartep was a title in honour of the mortuary cult and its founder. And when the great king commanded him to remove his mask, to disrobe and show his body, Kartep obliged. The ruler was astounded when the priest emerged from his shell, revealing a normal human body. This was no wizened, decrepit form. It was healthy, the body of a man who had lived a standard human life. Naked before the ruler, this Kartep inquired calmly if his body met the king's satisfaction. Confused, Shaken, the monarch commanded all the mortuary priests to disrobe, to reveal themselves, and one by one the secretive order came forth. To a man, each of them seemed healthy. Authors note, of course, my learned colleagues in the College of Wizardry are more than familiar with the arts of illusion, of glamour and deception. What brother of the college has not changed his appearance when leading a diplomatic mission or conducting secret imperial business? Today, these crafts are child's play, part of every acolyte's instruction. Yet perhaps in those ancient days, the priests were the first to develop such arts. Their deceptions, although simple by comparison, may be the first instance of a now standard spell. The mortuary cultists passed their tests and resumed their works. Yet while the great kings trusted them to serve and honour their oaths, the people of Nehekara viewed these priests with mistrust. They feared the dark magics with which they toyed, and the demonic beings with whom they allegedly consorted. In time, the populace began to call them the lich priests, priests of undeath, of necromancy, Perhaps, at first, it was merely a description, for the liches did indeed plumb the secrets of death and seek to resurrect what had passed beyond. But in time, the corruption of their magics, and the influence of more chaotic forces, surely twisted the lich priests beyond their original mission. Thus came the days of Nagash, the greatest of sorcerers and the most terrible calamity to ever befall the earth. In the reign of Ketep, great king of Khemri, a royal son came forth. He is now known as Nagash, though whether this was his birth name, none of my sources can say. All we know for sure is that early in his life, Nagash went to the mortuary cult. He became an acolyte, a student of the dark arts, and in time, he rose high within the ranks of the secret society. Whether Nagash was naturally talented, or whether the priests recognized the value of a prince among their leadership, we do not now know. But when Nagash donned the robes and mask of a lich priest supreme, a doom came to Nehekara. As a priest of the cult, Nagash was forbidden to inherit the throne. But the young man, arrogant and ambitious, desired more. When his younger brother, Thutep, became the new king, Nagash bided his time. He served his brother for decades, offering great service as a leader of the mortuary cult. Nagash and the Hierophant Katep treated Thutep as they would any ruler of Khemri. They extended the king's life with potions, prepared spells that would ensure his perfect mummification. And when the time was right, they made their grab for power. One night, Nagash summoned his most faithful acolytes. They stole into the palace, shrouding it in darkness, and cloaking themselves in spells of illusion. Wearing the face of the king and his bodyguards, they crept into the royal apartments and kidnapped the true ruler. They threw their monarch, Thutep, into a black stone sarcophagus, which they sealed in a burial chamber of their father's pyramid. When the king was locked within his prison, Nagash and his servants cast spells over the cold stone box. They condemned Thutep to the darkest of fates, a lifespan of centuries without food or water. The king would wither slowly, his body rotting while his soul remained locked in its shell. Why Nagash did not simply kill Thutep, I can only guess. Perhaps even at this foul moment, the young priest still retained some shred of honour, or... Perhaps his cowardice held him back. He would not murder his brother, he would let time do it for him. His foul deed done, Nagash ascended to the throne, and a reign of terror began. Chapter 5. The Tyranny of Nagash Nagash was a fearsome ruler. Under his authority, the people of Nehekara were taxed into poverty. Those who resisted were enslaved, and even the lich priests, once so powerful, feared to challenge their former student. The king gathered power like a miser hoards wealth. His appetite was insatiable, and soon, Nagash sought to extend his authority beyond any rational limit. Like his predecessors, Nagash sought to live forever. He pursued every tool, every artifice, that might extend his reign. In the end, Nagash settled on a combination of architecture and arcana. To facilitate his magics, the king commanded his subjects to begin constructing a new pyramid. The people obeyed, mistakenly assuming that this would be a tomb like any other. However, Nagash had designed his pyramid to act not as a burial, but as a conduit, a nexus of arcane crafts and magic. When complete, Nagash's pyramid would amplify his access to the powers of creation. Truly, this was a monument of the cruelest arts. Constructed in black marble, the pyramid seemed to defy nature. Though it stood in the gleaming sun all day, the stone remained cold to the touch. At night, the light of moon and stars bathed the desert around, but the pyramid remained black, a monolith absorbing all light. When complete, the Black Pyramid of Nagash towered over all others. It even dwarfed the monument of Setra, and thanks to its dark construction, the pyramid drew magic into itself, channelling the supernatural powers into Nehekara. On the day of his pyramid's completion, Nagash knew his access to power now far surpassed even the gods. With such forces at his command, the king now looked to an eternity of power. The world would be his. The reign of Nagash cast a terrible burden upon the peoples of Nehekara. Endless demands for tribute and tax impoverished many cities. And when a city could not pay the king's demands, his legions plundered and razed them to the ground. Thus, the population of Nehekara began to decline for the first time in centuries. Facing collapse, the petty kings and princes who formed Nehekara's elite began to plot their revenge. Soon after the Black Pyramid reached completion, the cities and rulers of Nehekara rose up in rebellion against Nagash. Throwing off the burdens of their tyrannical ruler, seven kings rallied their troops and marched into the heartland. Their ranks swelled by the disaffected and desperate. The rebels were confident of victory. Surely, none would stand at the side of Nagash, the tyrant who had brought them all to the brink of ruin. However... Nagash had not spent his reign in idle splendour. The king's magical investigations had ranged far beyond the limits of respectability, and he now wielded magics unprecedented on earth. When his own troops deserted and the rebel armies closed around him, Nagash committed an unspeakable act. Taking his acolytes to a necropolis, Nagash led a ritual that perverted every rule of life. With dark spells, Nagash commanded the dead to rise from their graves. The sands writhed as countless bodies shifted and dug their way to the surface. Soon the rotting corpses of Nehekara's ancient warriors and people scrambled forth, clutching rusted weapons in skeletal hands. These walking dead marched out of the necropolis to face the armies of the living. Nagasha’s deeds were unprecedented, and many of his foes quailed at the mere sight of this necrotic horde. Nagasha's armies marched across Nehekara, plundering cities and slaughtering innocents. The living fell only to rise again as servants of the dark ruler. With every life lost, the ranks of his undead legion grew. The seven rebels, the petty kings of Nehekara, faced an impossible task. To defeat Nagash, they would require every artifice, every skill, that their kingdoms could produce. As city after city fell, the seven kings retreated, and for a time, all hope seemed lost. At last, though, a solution was discovered. To face the undead horde, the seven rebels turned to the only ones who could possibly understand Nagash. The kings begged aid from the lich priests of the mortuary cult. To their great surprise, the liches agreed with enthusiasm. Despite their hopes, the reign of Nagash had been as terrible for the lich priests as it was for the people. Arrogant and jealous, Nagash hoarded his power and refused to share with the mortuary cult that created him. Even the hierophant Katep viewed his pupil with disdain, and then with horror. As Nagash's crimes multiplied, the priests of the mortuary cult turned on their former colleague. When the kings begged their assistance, the lich priests agreed. Although they could not hope to stand against Nagash directly, the lich priests could aid in many ways. They turned their spells and crafts to the art of war, and their strange inventions have now become legend. To face the horde of undead, the liches fashioned their own immortal warriors. In haste, they turned to the arts of animation. The priests gathered up statues, towering figures that adorned temples, tombs and necropolis cities. These statues, in the form of kings, gods and even sphinxes, would be the new soldiers of the living. To animate these statues, the liches summoned souls from the realm of spirits. They cast magical nets deep into the void and plucked shades from the howling vortex. These spirits, the souls of dead liches, came willingly, hoping that their resurrection had arrived. Yet, when they awoke, these ancient beings found themselves prisoners, bound to the limbs of titanic stone bodies. Their furious cries resounded through the land. Day by day, the lich priests laboured, energising and animating thousands of constructs. They raised sphinxes, part lion and man and mighty Ushabti, statues carved to resemble the gods. At last, they even animated a Hierotitan. These enormous beings, 40 feet high and more, once stood in the deepest halls of pyramids and tombs. They were guardians of the dead, protectors of the souls. Now, the Hierotitans stumbled forth from their ancient abodes. Eyes glowing with baleful magics, and grasping the emblems of their eternal power, these immense beings were the mightiest warriors in the new Nehekaran army. The living statues, Sphinx, Ushabti, and Hierotitan alike, now served the liches and kings. These were a perfect counter to the undead. The constructs would fight without rest or food. They would never tire, never falter, and never stop, until their task was done. At last, the rebels had a weapon to face Nagash's hordes. The kings of Nehekara abandoned their retreat and returned to the battlefield. Their armies bolstered by constructs and reinforced by the lich priests themselves, the living marched on Nagash. The rebel kings and their warriors met Nagash under a vast sky of palest blue. It was not a battle in the ordinary sense, Rather, the battalions, undead shamblers on one side, living constructs on the other, fought one another as two boxes, evenly matched, might struggle for mastery of a yard. Each blow thrown was equalled by its opposite, and in the face of such devastation, the struggle became a horrible grind. The rebels threw themselves into the fray with reckless abandon. Their warriors, fighting monsters and their own terror, were near suicidal in their fury. They hacked at the undead like savages, striking down the foe with nary a thought for their own safety. Beside them, the constructs wreaked vengeance among the undead. Howling sphinxes, screaming Ushabti, and the impassive Hyro-Titans stormed through the gaps, laying waste with arcane swords and magic-tipped spears. Their fury was a sight to behold as they tore through the enemy hordes. Individual necromancers, Nagash's vile officers, were isolated and trampled by the Sphinxes. The Ushabti's swords clove a path through the king's zombified servants. The constructs faced every frightful horror and executed with impunity. In time, these implacable warriors drove their foes back to the pit. Such aggression... Such bravery caught Nagash off guard. The dark ruler, a coward at heart, could barely conceive that mortals would challenge his horde. Panicking, the necromancer cast about wildly, but his spells destroyed as many of his creations as they did his enemies. In his terror, Nagash undid much of his own work, and with their foes' unwilling aid, the seven rebel kings came to dominate the battlefield. Facing defeat, Nagash did what all cowards do. He fled, evading his enemies, bewailing their fury and cursing them for opposition. The dark ruler rode north astride a chariot of bone. He abandoned his followers to their fate, and soon vanished from the lands of Nehekara. Within days of his defeat, Nagash's reign was utterly broken. The necromancer was gone. The victors wasted no time. From one battlefield to another, they surrounded the necromancers and tore them limb from limb. They burned their bodies and trapped their souls in canopic jars. They bound those souls into new constructs. Thus, with each victory, the once beleaguered army of the living began to ascend. They gained new warriors and became dominant once more. Marching down the banks of the great river, the living troops ground their undead foes to dust. Nagash would not appear in Nehekara for nearly 500 years. The necromancer fled to unknown northern lands, where he bided his time and expanded his knowledge. The dark ruler yearned to avenge his defeat and rule Nehekara once more. For half a millennium, the vile sorcerer plotted his revenge. Chapter 6 The End of Nehekara, The Creation of the Tomb Kings. Centuries passed, and the people of Nehekara slowly rebuilt their kingdoms. Dynasties rose, flourished, and passed in relative peace. The great kings and their vassals enjoyed a semblance of prosperity and order, and they are noteworthy chapters in the history of this land. But I regret, esteemed reader, that the accounts of these rulers would exceed even your vaunted patience. In time, I will record the histories of such monarchs, the reign of al called the Conqueror, the tale of Khalida and her sister Neferata, the first vampire, or the treachery of Apophas, the cursed scarab lord, and the monuments of ra Emhotep, Necrotect of Qatar, and the greatest builder Nehekara ever saw. These tales are worth the telling. One day I will recount them. For 500 years, Nehekara enjoyed relative peace. They had banished Nagash and defeated his vile minions. And as the centuries passed, those terrible days receded into memory. Eventually, people began to forget the foul deeds of that monstrous being. Of course, this was the moment that Nagash had awaited. When his spies reported that the kings had become complacent, Nagash saw his opportunity. The vile sorcerer returned to Nehekara. He stole into the necropolis at night and used his foul magics to resurrect dead lieutenants who had served him long before. In a matter of weeks, Nagash had summoned a new army, and with a fresh legion of undead, he made a second war on Nehekara. The return of Nagash was a complex affair, but it ended briefly with the sorcerer's defeat. The great king al threw down Nagash and his warriors. And were it not for a terrible betrayal, the sorcerer may have died there and then. Alas, treachery struck al and he was imprisoned. And for a single year, Nagash returned to the throne. Nagash, surely, was not the same being who had fled Nehekara so many years before. By now, the sorcerer had become a twisted, inhuman figure. His mind and body warped by the chaotic forces that scream within the void. If there was a trace of humanity left in the Vile Prince, it was long gone. Now, he thought only of power and death. Nagash abandoned his desire to rule the living, and made plans for a great ritual. Consuming eldritch magics and warped artifacts, the wretched sorcerer began to summon the foulest magics from the deep recesses of the cosmos. His powers spread forth from his hidden sanctum, and began to corrupt the land of Nehekara itself. Seeping into the soil, infecting the air, the witchcraft of Nagash tainted every part of the world. The Great River, the River of Life, turned putrid and stagnant under this influence. Worse than any time since the Great Pestilence, more than a thousand years before, the river ceased to be a source of life and became a source of death. Plants withered and mutated, their fruits turning to poison, their sap turned to ichor. Animals bled, though they bore no wounds, and soon began to twist and corrupt. They grew extra limbs, their teeth turned to fangs, and they preyed on living and dead alike. Even the air grew heavy, humid with an otherworldly damp. The wind, formerly a balm to the sun drenched lands, became a furnace, and with no water to drink, the people of Nehekara succumbed to the worst plague in centuries. The great kings were powerless against this treachery. At first, they knew not whence came the punishing magics. They made offerings to the gods, hoping to assuage some imagined slight. But when these offerings proved ineffective, and Petra remained silent, they realised at last what was happening. By then, it was far too late. Nagash had cursed the land and its people. He had not killed them outright, but his poison seeped into their bones, and infected them with a fate worse than death. Nagash's skills in necromancy had reached a point undreamed by any priest or sorcerer. With the foulest, most chaotic magics at his command, Nagash doomed an entire land to a state of undeath. Nagash's ritual lasted more than seven weeks, and it nearly reached its completion. But in the last moments, the great king Al-Qadizar finally chanced upon his enemy's location freed from his imprisonment the king penetrated the crypt where nagash had secreted himself al-qadiza plunged his blade into the sorcerer's breast he tore nagash's heart from its body and he ripped the sorcerer apart with his bare hands aided by the lich priests al-qadiza savaged the remains of this vile necromancer and as he did so the great king believed he had saved the land alas Nagash's sorcery was too advanced, his spell too far gone. Even as his body disintegrated, Nagash's spirit, or Kaaf, continued its work. When the Lich Priests ensnared the spirit with their magics, Nagash unleashed his final act of betrayal. A great pulse of chaotic magic spread from the tomb, and as the shockwave rippled across the land, Nagash delivered the coup de grace. Then, his deed accomplished, the spirit vanished. Escaping the lich's bonds with ease. He fled into the void to unknown ends. Nagash's curse spread across Nehekara, And as the sorcerer's body perished and his spirit fled, the spell itself began to unwind. The foul magics swirled out of control, and they began to corrupt things that even Nagash had dared not touch. Across the land, the wayward spells drifted into catacombs and burial chambers. They crept into sarcophagi and seeped into the limbs of the ancient sleeping dead. As they did so, they began to work a strange effect. Nagash's spell, quite beyond his intent, had done something that no other priest had achieved. His magic touched the bodies of ancient kings, and in the dark recesses of their tombs, the rulers' hearts began to beat once more. After centuries of sleep, the mummified kings of Nehekara were returning to life. Indeed, it was Nagash who birthed the tomb kings. While the necromancer's foul magics coursed through the land, there was one monument that Nagash could not touch. The protective wards that encased the Great Pyramid ensured that in his chamber, King Setra was immune. Lying in his burial casket, the mummy of this king remained at its rest. And were it not for a wise follower, the imperishable one might be lying there still. Fortunately, the grand hierophant Khatep was the first to understand what Nagash had done. His rotted limbs shaking, the ancient priest made his way from the battlefield and headed for Khemri. He hurried to the necropolis and the great pyramid of Setra. With his followers, Kartep determined to find the old king's chambers. Kartep and the liches broke the seals of Setra's tomb and crept into the darkness. They penetrated the halls, casting spells to awaken the statues that guarded this ancient tomb. They performed rituals over the coffins of the tomb guard, restoring those ancient soldiers to a semblance of life. They gathered all the beings who lay within the pyramid and summoned them to serve their great king. At last, the honor guard prepared, Kartep and the liches entered the burial chamber. They set wards and summoned spirits to guard them while they worked. Then, over the course of many days, they performed a series of rites that would restore Setra to life. Slowly, hour by hour, they fed energy into the desiccated corpse. With care and the skill of centuries, Khartep awakened his lord. Setra's eyes opened for the first time in 1,000 years. His sockets, once empty, now glowed with an arcane fire. The king could see as clear as day, and when he beheld the withered faces of the lich priests, he assumed that the great task was at last complete. For a moment, Setra felt an overwhelming joy, His immortality had come at last. The king's glee dissipated when he moved his ancient limbs. Bones scraped against one another, and mummified flesh crackled like paper. The warmth that should have accompanied life was gone. Only the chill of death remained. As the king's consciousness returned, he realized the horror of his new existence. Setra burst from his sarcophagus like a lion on the hunt. With a roar, he plunged his fist through the face of the first lich priest he saw. His mummified hand retained its old strength, and seemed to strike with new vigour. The priest, unprepared, crumbled beneath the king's assault. And for a terrible moment, Setra was in danger of destroying those who now gave him life. The hierophant Katep, thinking quickly, threw himself to the ground, prostrating himself before the great king. His acolytes did the same, and in a moment, Setra saw a familiar sight. Servants, all around, bowing to his majesty. The great king's rage cooled long enough to recognise the cowering shape of Kartep. Setra looked upon the Hierophant, and saw, at last, what he had failed to see in life. The shambling, withered husk of the lich priest was all that remained, and in a moment, Setra understood. Immortality remained an impossible dream. All that was left was an eternal undeath. Setra's wrath was terrible, his fury undiminished. Yet the long passage of centuries and the slow sleep of death embalmed had turned his fire to a cold rage. Setra now viewed his servants dispassionately, and he saw their weakness. In long moments of rumination, the great king considered all the decisions that had brought him to this point. He beheld Khartep and saw him, truly saw him, for the first time in centuries. He saw his own failure, the overreaching ambition that had empowered these vile undead priests. And he saw the irony that this failure had led to his partial resurrection. Setra's rage was cool and did not boil, and he bid the Hierophant to rise. Katep, fearing for his unlife, begged the king's mercy. To his surprise, Setra granted it. For his crimes, his deceit in life, Setra banished Katep from his sight. The Hierophant was forbidden to set foot in any of Nehekara's cities. Condemned, he would wander without home until the time that he discovered the secret of immortality, of true eternal life, restored and vigorous. Thus, the king exiled the Hierophant and condemned him to a life on the run. But, for his service, Setra would permit Kartep to retain what life remained. Likewise, the priest would retain his right to wield the greatest magics. Setra bound Kartep to oath, to wander the world and aid him whenever he called. Pitifully grateful for his lingering life, Kartep obeyed. He fled the tomb and has not been seen in Nehekara since. Awakened from death, Setra emerged from his tomb and returned to his city. When they beheld the ancient lord, the people and rulers bowed before his might, and the resurrected tomb kings emerging from their crypts quailed at the sight of his power. Soon, Setra the Imperishable, the great king of Nehekara, sat on his throne once more. Author's note. It is said that when he awoke and saw his shattered kingdom, Setra knew that calamity had come to the land. With a twisted sense of irony, the great king ordered that the inscriptions on his tomb be recarved. Once, the lintel of his pyramid bore the legend, look upon my works and despair. Now, with the ruins of Nehekara all around, Setra chose a new emblem, one that invoked the service of his eternal warriors. Today, the Great Pyramid bears a strangely familiar text. The grave is no bar to my call. In life, Setra had been the epitome of a terrifying but fair ruler. In death, his sense of order lost none of its edge. He returned to preside over Khemri and all Nehekara with an unbending determination. He was implacable in battle, merciless in vengeance. And yet, those who have seen the Tomb King, and lived to record the tale, speak of his honour and care for his subjects. In death, as in life, Setra guides his kingdom like a shepherd guides his flock. While he takes his fleece, the annual tribute, he rules with justice. Ultimately, Setra retains the wisdom that made him a great king. And though his rage is terrible to behold, he remains uncompromising in principles. Many years have passed since the tomb kings awoke, and to this day, few venture into Nehekara willingly. Lone caravans may try the crossing, hurrying over the sands, and stopping only when they must. Certainly, some men consider the treasures of Nehekara, or those available in distant lands, worth the attempt. They are fools. Few survive the crossing, and those who do, are scarcely willing to attempt it again. Today, the land of Nehekara is a barren wasteland, home only to the dead. They remain within their borders, governing their realms and slowly rebuilding their splendour. But I fear, dear reader, that their quietude is only temporary. That a day may come when the Tomb Kings decide once again to leave their ancestral kingdom. Perhaps when their magics grow strong enough, they will seek to restore their ancient empire. On that day, I fear, the armies of human, orc, elf, and lizard may tremble to face them. From the account of Vigand Lemann, Wizard of the Imperial College, Altdorf, Reichland. Written in the year 2502 in the Imperial Calendar. All glories to the esteemed reader in whose honour this text was composed. The Emperor of Humanity, Protector of the Empire, Defier of the Dark, Elector Count of Reichland and Prince of Altdorf, Karl Franz I, may he reign in splendour and drive back the darkness. And now, an introduction to the warriors of the Nehekaran army, and their real-life Egyptian inspirations. The armies of the Tomb Kings are a mix of shambling undead and mighty constructs. Perhaps the most famous of the Tomb Kings warriors are the Ushabti, towering humanoid figures with animal heads. These living statues carry curved swords or great bows. They are fierce in the melee, and can strike enemies down at great distance. The Ushabti act as guardians of the tomb and burial chambers. Originally, they were erected as statues to watch over halls and burials, or stand sentinel over the necropolis. Later in Nehekaran history, the lich priests animated these statues, and bound the souls of the dead within their bodies. Today. They are fearsome warriors who serve the tomb kings, and fight without rest. The Ushabti take some inspiration from the real Shabtiyu, or Ushabti, placed in Egyptian tombs. The Nehekaran version is a combination of the ancient shabtiu with two-dimensional imagery of the Egyptian gods. They make for a fearsome creature, and an elegant addition to a fantasy image of ancient Egyptian death. The Ushabti are a reasonably solid interpretation of ancient Egyptian mythology. They are obviously remixed into something that works on a tabletop as part of an army, but the basic concept is not totally outlandish. Certainly, they are very cool to watch, and they are one of the more innovative ideas in the Tomb King's unit roster. I give the Ushabti 4 out of 5 unks on the authenticity scale. The next unit of note is the Sepulchral Stalker. These are statues, constructs, in the forms of cobra-human hybrids. They have long serpentine bodies that meet broad human shoulders, with arms that clutch spears, halberds, and kopesh swords. Their heads are caricatures of a human skull, elongated and twisted into rictus grins with snarling visages. Some of the stalkers bear masks, expressionless and cold. A terrifying sight as they rush across the desert, the only sound the hiss of their bodies slithering on sand. Despite their name, the sepulchral stalkers were actually created to patrol the borders. They wind their way across the sand, covering great distances at speed. Since the fall of Nehekara, many stalkers lie in wait beneath the desert. Although they sleep, the steady tramp of unwary travellers may awaken them. They burst from the sands, weapons glittering and sharp, and they stain the ground with blood and gore, before returning to their slumber. Truly, the stalkers are a most unexpected and terrifying foe. If you cross the wastes of Nehekara today, make sure to walk without rhythm, lest you awaken the beasts below. The stalkers are inspired by the Uraeus, the mythical guardians of Egypt's ruler. The Uraeus, a cobra goddess, would aid the pharaoh in battle, and texts refer to her spitting fire at the king's foes. By contrast, the sepulchral stalkers are more literal, shedding blood rather than flame, and darting rapidly across the battlefield. So, the stalkers get a high rating for their concept, they take the idea of the Uraeus and adapt it into a fearsome, literal being. If there was a stalker that spat fire, that would be even better. Three out of five unks on the authenticity scale. Of course, we could not reckon with the warriors of Nehekara without discussing the Tomb Guard. The Tomb Guard are the elite warriors of Nehekara, the personal bodyguards to each king. They march in stern legions, emerging from the halls of the pyramids themselves. Today, many of them are mere skeletons or desiccated corpses. But despite this decay, their armour has lost none of its sheen, and their weapons are as sharp as the day they died. Silent, skeletal, and utterly without mercy, the Tomb Guard fight to the last bone to protect their immortal sovereigns. If you face these dread warriors on the battlefield, My advice is to run. The tomb guard take a mostly human inspiration. Their armour seems to consist of short loincloths and mummy wrappings. But their shoulders are protected by large collars, clearly inspired by the ancient Egyptian Shebu, a type of collar that fans out across the shoulder and down over the chest. The tomb king's collars may bear emblems of gods or warriors on the front. Their headdresses are large crests that fan out side to side. These seem more inspired by stereotypical Greek or Roman military headdresses. The officers may wear masks with false beards, and cold, expressionless faces. For armour, they wield large shields with rounded tops. This is adapted from the ancient Egyptian style of shield. Although Egyptian shields were wood with cowhide over the top, while Nehekarans are wood with bronze and decorative inlays. Their primary weapon is a sword, a direct rip of the ancient Egyptian Kopesh. This is a wicked sickle shaped sword, perfect for slashing and cutting down foes. The tomb guard do not have a literal historical counterpart. Although the ancient Egyptians maintained a police force around the necropolis, the famous Medjai of the New Kingdom and Late Periods, the idea of a buried army is mostly fantasy. Although there are a couple of examples from Egyptian history that might have provided some inspiration, the tomb guard really exists as a kind of archetypal Egyptian soldier, a little bit fancied up with new weapons and armour, and put together in regiments to protect the king. Basically, they are mostly gameplay fantasy, but they are pretty cool. A solid middle rating on the authenticity test. 3 out of 5 unks. Next, we come to the Necro-Sphinx. The Necro-Sphinx is a living statue. It is a human-lion-scorpion-falcon hybrid. The Necrosphinx is a bizarre and horrifying statue, part man, part beast. It has a lion's body, melded with a human torso and head, and a long scorpion tail lashes out from the hindquarters. At its back, a pair of enormous wings rise, the wings of a hawk, emblems of the sky god, Fakth. The Necrosphinx's mighty arms clutch weapons of immense size long blades inlaid with glass and gold. These dread swords cut down enemies as easily as a farmer cuts the wheat. And when the necrosphinx reaps, they do not stop until the bloody harvest is complete. The necrosphinx is a strange beast, one that even the Nehekarans did not fully understand. In distant aeons, the lich priests built the necrosphinx as an amalgamation of all other forms. Human warrior, desert lion, stinging scorpion, and divine falcon. Each one a deadly hunter with different skills. In their hubris, the Lich Priests tried to combine the strengths of each creature, and so manufacture a superweapon, one capable of matching any foe on the battlefield. In one respect they succeeded, for the Necrosphinx is a terrifying warrior indeed it is capable of slicing through dragon scales with their deadly blades. However, the dark magics that imbue the necrosphinx with life come not from humans, but from underworld gods, terrible beings who dwell in the deepest caverns. With these elemental forces animating the necrosphinx, the great beasts proved difficult to control, and when disasters inevitably struck, Many priests wondered if this ultimate warrior was naught but abomination. The Necro-Sphinx is partly inspired by the ancient concept of the Sphinx. Part animal, part human, sometimes adorned with wings. The Sphinx is famous in ancient Egyptian tradition, but you will find similar creatures in the mythologies of Mesopotamia, India, Southeast Asia, and Southern Europe. The animal-human hybrid is often a fearsome warrior or guardian, and their personalities vary depending on the culture. In Egypt, the sphinx was both a shining deity, an avatar of the sun god Ra, Horus of the horizon, and also a conquering warrior. In the 18th dynasty, rulers like Thutmose IV, Amunhotep III, and Akhenaten depicted themselves as sphinxes in art. They trampled enemies, honoured the gods, and protected the state of Egypt from its foes. In this sense, The Necrosphinx of Nehekara is a reasonably faithful, but creative adaptation. A few details are changed or remixed for fun and gameplay, but overall, the concept is pretty solid. 4 out of 5 unks. Finally, we have my personal favourite, the Hyro Titan. The Jairo Titans are enormous statues, 40-plus feet tall. They are armed with a staff and an enormous pair of scales. They stride across the battlefield, smashing enemies aside. And at times, their eyes fill with a holy fire, and flash outward in a beam of pure energy. Thus, they smite their foes, who cower in their shadow. Crafted as guardians of the tomb chambers in Nehekaran pyramids, the hyro would act as guides. They shepherded the spirits of the king as they ascended to the land of the dead, aka the realm of souls. With such proximity to the gods, and a world far beyond human comprehension, it is no wonder that people who have seen the hyro report fabulous things. It is said that when standing in the gloom of a hyro shadow, a person's ears are filled with the cruel laughter of primeval beings. Unlike the Ushabti, the Hyrotitan is not truly a statue. It is crafted of stone and metal, but the heart of the Titan is living. To animate a Hyrotitan, the Nehekarans would entomb a priest within the statue's chest. Not the spirit of the priest, their actual body. So, every Hierotitan is like an enormous suit of armour around a human at the centre. In other words, the Hierotitans are a form of human sacrifice mixed with colossal construction. In Nehekara, they are sacred beings given form on earth. The staff they carry is adorned with an emblem of the sun god Petra, and the pair of scales are known as the Scales of Ussyrian. These scales are direct copies of the Divine Scales, on which Usyrian would measure the worth of a king. If a dead ruler was unworthy, the scales would tip against them, and the weakling soul was cast into the flames of hell. But if mighty and just, the ruler would pass this test, and the scales of Usyrian would balance in his favour. If that happened, he would live forever in the realm of souls. Thus, the Hyro-Titan bears an item imbued with significance and no small amount of magic. When striding across the battlefield, the Hyro-Titan brandishes the scales of Ussirian, and when mortals gaze upon them, they will find themselves face to face with their own immortal judgment. Understandably, many warriors have gone mad at the mere sight of these terrifying artifacts. Historically, the Hierotitan is basically a colossus, an enormous statue similar to many that the ancient Egyptians constructed. The colossi of Memnon at Luxor, or the towering statues of Ramesses II, Ozymandias, and the Akhenaten colossi of Karnak, each bear some resemblance to the Hierotitan in principle. The titan and the statues bear certain emblems like false beards and headdresses but the Hierotitan Titan is definitely a reinterpretation of the idea. After all, Egyptian colossi are inanimate, so far, and they convey specific ideas that the artist or pharaoh wanted to communicate. By contrast, the Hyrotitan Titan is a war machine. It is designed for mobility and battle. And of course, the design of the Hyrule Titan needs to pass that standard test. Is this model cool? In that sense, the Hyro Titan is a great idea, even if it is pretty far off ancient colossi. So, historical inspiration, 2 out of 5 unks. Battlefield awesomeness, 5 out of 5. This brings me to the end of my fictional history, and my brief analysis of some of the Tomb King's units. As you may have guessed, I may do a part 2 at some point in the future. There are many other characters to recount, and many units or arcane magics to describe. For now, it is time to say farewell. We have a couple of epilogues, but this is the end of the ride. Thank you for listening to the History of Nehekāra podcast. The music for much of this episode was composed by Tabletop Audio, who generously licensed it for the use. Additional tracks came from Pond 5 Recordings, and you can find links to these composers in the description. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you soon. Epilogue. An inscription carved on a Nehekaran obelisk erected in the reign of Setra the Imperishable, recorded and translated by the traveller, Alan Gertner. It says, Hail to the mighty tomb guard who stand before me, you who will watch over me for all eternity. For I, Setra, lord and priest-king of Khemri, will awaken to command you in the paradise that awaits us. Hail to the Ushabti and Sphinx, who stand sentinel beside the monuments of the king. Arise, ye sphinxes who crouch beside the monuments. Your prey has been found. Hail to the commanders of my army, leading forth your regiments to join me in eternity. Fill the air with the sound of your worship. Hail to the warriors of my legions. Make ready your weapons and fill the air with the sound of your chariots pursuing the foe. Your battle standards are pleasing to my sight, and that of the gods. See how the sun god shines upon them. Remember them gleaming this day, as you enter the darkness of the tomb. Fear not what we must do, and think only of the glory that awaits me upon awakening. Hail to the lich priests, you who have loyally served without counting the years. You who raised up your incantations to strengthen my spirit. Look upon my flesh, my warriors. Once I was a mighty king, destined to live the life of a god. Yet my flesh withers upon my bones, my body succumbs to the ravages of time, and soon death will claim me. But it shall not always be so. In strange aeons, even death may lose its grip, and though I march to the tomb, I yet have the spirit of a king. And you also, though you are but mere mortals, you have the invincible spirit of the army of Setra. Turn your heads, my soldiers, turn your heads, and see the fair river of life. You will see it again when the world is ready to receive us, and you reclaim that which is mine by right and birth. We are the glory of Khemri, and shall rise again to fulfill our destiny and rule this world. Now... Make ready your weapons, my soldiers, for the time is at hand. Go forth, I command you. Go forth in haste, and march with your king into the darkness of the tomb. Make great the name of Setra and Khemri. The darkness draws near, and there are great deeds that remain undone. Enemies yet to crush, and raptures yet to rejoice. So, as it is written, so shall it be done. I, Setra, have proclaimed it, and none dare oppose my will. Epilogue 2. The Titles of Setra. The titles and ranks of Setra the Imperishable. Translated by the apprentice mage, Hervig Kindler, from a broken tablet discovered near the ruins of Khemri. O mighty Setra, great king, the imperishable, khemri Kara the great king of Nehekara, king of kings, opener of the way, wielder of the divine flame, punisher of nomads, the great unifier, commander of the golden legion, sacred of appearance, bringer of light, father of hawks, builder of cities, protector of the two worlds, keeper of the hours, chosen of Petra, high steward of the horizon, sailor of the great river, Sentinel of the Two Realms, the Undisputed, Begetter of the Begat, Scourge of the Faithless, Carrion-Feeder. First of the Charnel Valley, Rider of the Sacred Chariot, Vanquisher of Vermin, Champion of the Death Arena. Mighty Lion of the Infinite Desert, Emperor of the Shifting Sands, He who holds the Sceptre, Great Hawk of the Heavens, Arch-Monarch of Atalan, Waker of the Hierotitan, monarch of the sky majestic emperor of the shifting sands champion of the desert gods breaker of the ogre clans builder of the great pyramid terror of the living master of the never-ending horizon master of the necropolis taker of souls tyrant to the foolish bearer of petra's holy blade scion of Usyrian, scion of nehek the great one Chaser of Nightmares, Keeper of the Royal Herat, Founder of the Mortuary Cult, Banisher of the Grand Hierophant, High Lord Admiral of the Death Fleet, Guardian of the Charnel Pass, Tamer of the Lich King, Unliving Jackal Lord, Dismisser of the Warrior Queen, Charioteer of the Gods, He who does not serve, Slayer of Reditras, Scarab Purger, Favoured of Usirian, Player of the Great Game, Liberator of Life, Lord Sand, Wrangler of Scorpions, Emperor of the Dunes. Eternal Sovereign of Khemri's Legions, Seneschal of the Great Sandy Desert, Cursor of the Living, Regent of the Eastern Mountains. Warden of the Eternal Necropolis, Herald of all Heralds, Caller of the Bitter Wind, God-Tamer, Master of the River of Death, Guardian of the Dead, Great Keeper of the Obelisks. Deacon of the Ash River, Belated of Wakers, General of the Mighty Frame, Summoner of Sandstorms, Master of all Necrotechs, Prince of Dust, Tyrant of Araby, Purger of the Greenskin Breathers, Killer of the False God's Champions, Tyrant of the Golden Dunes, Avenger of the Dead, Carrion Master, Eternal Warden of Nehek's Lands, Breaker of Jaff's Bonds. Translators note, the tablet breaks here. By the dimension of the piece, there were doubtless an equal number of titles or more that are now lost. The translation kept in the college library is written on parchment, and it seems to have been composed by an acolyte as part of his studies many years ago. On a separate piece of parchment, stuck to the back of this translation, another text reads, the apprentice, Hervig Kindler, Formally requests transfer from the Department of Translations and Archives and reposting to another bureau. Something with fewer words, or at least fewer counts of heresy.